Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Father Michael Kaiser. Let me read a bit from the beginning of the section of St. Paul's Apostle through the Ephesians that we had today. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers and darkness, rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. When an Orthodox Christian says he believes in an angel or a demon, he means that. Now, a lot of other Christians today would say, oh, well, that's just, you know, kind of the way they looked at those things back in those days. They were simple and superstitious people. Uh, And, you know, you don't take that sort of thing seriously anymore. Uh, You know, so we have to somehow translate that. She's not bothering me if she's not bothering you. (laughs) Okay, just relax. But we take this very seriously, and the church has from the earliest days. Have you seen a demon? I have. I have confronted them. I have had to exorcise places of them. So I can testify to the fact that either I was, have been struck several times by terrible delusions, or what I was looking at was very real. And in my case, since the combat had already begun to cast the demon out, he made no attempt to hide his appearance. But the fact is, normally, demons come to us, not with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. No sane person would react to that. They come to us and present themselves to us in the most seductive guise power, uh, possible. Now, I don't mean by that, by the word seduction, that it is necessarily Well, we just got started. We're talking about demons. You haven't missed a whole lot. I don't mean seduction in a sexual sense, although that can be. I mean, certainly there's plenty of examples of that has happened. But let me tell you the story of a monk whose name was Hero. H-E-R-O, which is a Greek name, Eros. And he was a monastery in, the, in what is now called uh, Palestine. Uh, the great monastery of St. Sabas. And he had appear to him someone who had the guise of an angel. And the angel told Hero that God was very pleased with him, that God thought he was an excellent monk, he was a great monk, and because of that, because of his faithfulness, because of his discipline, because of his, you know, focus and piety, he was going to give him a gift. 
And the gift was that he could never be physically harmed. Well, Hero, I mean, you don't get an angel appear to you every day, so Hero went around telling, you know, the other monks uh, about what had happened, and they all warned him that this was a delusion. You know, this could, number one, they knew him, and yeah, you're okay as a monk, but, you know, top rate, no, you got a ways to go. Uh, but he had gotten seduced into what he wanted most, and that was to be the perfect monk. So, because the other monks did not listen to him, Hero went up to the top, the, 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 the uh, roof of the monastery, and threw himself off, and plunged, of course, to his death. And yet, before he actually expired, so strong was the delusion the demon had given him, because that's what it was, not an angel, he would not repent of what he had done. And it is said that with great, it was only with, with, with great begging that the other monks convinced the abbot to die, to bury him in the monk cemetery rather than with the suicides. Because normally a suicide is not buried. That's not necessarily done now, but I mean, in those days, you would not bury a suicide with other people. So these things are real, but when they come to us, you see, we have to learn to be discerning. Paul goes on and he says here, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this present world. He doesn't say the darkness of this present world. He says the rulers of the darkness of this present world. What goes on in our world that is of the dark, and Lord knows that seems to be getting worse and worse, isn't just something that happens. I mean, it's not like a thunderstorm or a typhoon or anything of that sort. What happens to us in terms of the disintegration and the deconstruction of our world, of our culture, of our society, is most definitely planned. It has order and method and thought behind it. Now, we know that with the angels, you have angels, you have archangels, you have thrones, you have dominions, you have powers, you have various ranks. And presumably, you have the same thing with the demons, because you have to remember that the demons were simply angels who rebelled against God. They weren't created as demons. Nobody made them demons. Lucifer means light bearer. Luciferus, the one who bears the light, is the chief of the demons. That is Satan, the devil. And there was war in heaven, and eventually Satan and his followers were cast down. There's that marvelous line uh, from uh, Paradise Lost that Satan says he would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. It was a pride thing. They thought they knew better than God what the, the, what, what, what the, the life of the world should unfold to be. God knew when he created the world it was going to cost him the life of his son. He knew it was going to go through. He knew he was going to be tortured. He knew he was going to be beaten. God knew all these things. It didn't come as any great surprise to him. 
or to the sun. There's a marvelous poem uh, written by St. John of the Cross, or John of the Cross, if you get nervous easily because he's not one of ours, but still. Uh, he and St. Teresa were Orthodox trapped in 16th century Spanish bodies. Uh, and at the very beginning of it, God says to the Word, he's not yet Jesus, he's pre-incarnate, should we create for you a bride? And the Word says, wow, Dad, cool, you know, really, sound, sounds nice. And so they begin this dialogue about what this will mean for the Word, should they do this. And they discuss the whole thing, betrayal, uh, repudiation, torture, death, which he would not necessarily have had to go through. You know, separation of soul from body, which for the incarnate word must have been a terrible, horrible thing, even if it was for brief 20, you know, 22 days or whatever it was. And at the end of all of that, the last words are, let there be light. So nothing that happens to Jesus at the, on the cross, none, none of this is a surprise. And none of this was a surprise to the demons who felt this was a horrible thing to have happen. How can you send your own son to die for these schmucks? What in God's name would, you know, cause you to think about sacrificing your own word, your own expression of yourself, for these people who, quite frankly, have difficulty maintaining, uh, it's like they've all got ADD. They can't remember God from one day to the next. That, I think, is what they rebelled against. It was the one chance to act freely that the angelic beings had. We have free will all the time. The angels had it only once. And they made their choice, those for God and those who are against. What will happen at the end of the world is God's business. I don't know anything about it, haven't got a clue, don't ask. Uh, but uh, if he chooses to bring them back, well, okay, fine. That's why we pay him 10% of the big bucks. But, you know, the, the, the choice is supposedly eternal and permanent. But Paul goes on here. against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I have been a priest of this church for 43 years. I am now 70 years old. I'll be 71 in December, hint, hint, uh, the 23rd. Uh, if there's any more of that Mormon rye, that would be nice, you know. And the fact is that there's a real danger of cynicism if you're working for the church and in the church. All of us know we're sinners. All of us know we're imperfect. But we don't know the degree to which corruption exists in the body of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about heresy and stuff like that. I mean, we let the other people worry about that because that's not our issue. But I have been ordered to cover scandals 
so that people do not get scandalized. I have discovered scandals and not been able to get anybody in authority to do anything about it. And after years and years and years of working your way up the administration food chain until you're finally running a department and have control of part of the budget and, you know, all this, this, this great stuff, uh, you come to realize there is a great deal of corruption in God's church. This is often why people leave it. There are 750, I may have told you these numbers before, but there are about 750,000 Orthodox Christians in the U.S., of whom 290,000 are considered active, which means they occasionally show up in church. We lose 250,000, that's a quarter of a million people every generation, that's every 20 years doeth the man. Now, why does this happen? One of the reasons is that, well, some people are just, you know, very fragile and, and emotionally fragile and what have you and, and just can't handle things that they encounter in a community. Some people just have real problems living in community. Some people are so narcissistic they expect the community to arrive, arrive, revolve, sorry, around them rather than them being a fully functioning member of the community. <coughs> but I have seen people destroyed by priests, by bishops, <coughs> by parish councils, by laity, because they couldn't handle the reality that with the corruption in God's church, God was still his church. Now, I'm not telling this to discourage you. I mean, most of you have probably figured out a lot of this by now. Anyway, <coughs> we are sinners. But the fact is that much of what goes on in God's church is not edifying, is not righteous, is not beneficial. Our own archdiocese is probably half a mil on the whole now primarily due to incompetence. The Greek archdiocese is eight and a half mil on the whole. At least we're not there. Their treasurer, whom they just fired last year, charged the archdiocese $90,000 in travel expense. No, I'm sorry, $900,000 in travel expense, which he must have rented one of the Concords and simply flown on that. There is a lot that goes on that is unedified in our individual lives and, for that matter, in the church's life. I knew that had to be hanging in there somewhere. Come here. So what do we do? Because I'm not laying out a problem I don't expect you to do something about. And I don't expect you to cleanse the entire church. I'm not suggesting that either. What I'm talking about is what can you and I do to make the church more properly the bride of Christ. Well, for one thing, we have to pray. And I'm not talking about a couple of prayers morning, noon, and evening. We have to be willing to put ourselves 
firmly into a spiritual battle of prayer. It's general quarters. It's all hands on deck, spending at least an hour a day or whatever portion we can do, praising God because our prayer should always begin with praise of God and begging him to help to purify, purify his church and make it what it is supposed to be. The reason the church has corruption is us, not God. We're the ones who make the dumb decisions. You know, we're the ones who, if we're clergy, do not act properly. We're the ones who, if we're laity, take out our spleen and our anger and our vengeance on other people in the congregation and drive them off. You know, I have probably, because I've worked in this country, I worked in England and Ireland, I have probably brought thousands of people, probably several thousands of people into the Orthodox Church. And I was not alone. There were others of us doing that. My guess is, and I haven't tried to figure it out, but my guess is 50% of them may still be active. 50%. Because people see bad things happen in the church and they expect the church to act and the church does nothing. They see bad clergy. They meet bad clergy. They meet guys who are on some ego trip who want to be their spiritual advisor and their father confessor uh, and turn out to be, you know, uh, Heinrich Himmler but with an attitude. They expect the church to act if a congregation is in turmoil or in pain, and occasionally it does, they call somebody like me, not somebody with any real authority. 20 years ago, maybe it was a little longer now, when I got sent to St. Elias here in Atlanta, we had a very bad situation with a priest who had divorced, his, or his wife divorced him. He was allowed to keep serving. Uh, he secretly got married to another woman. He was going around the congregation asking old people for money because he said the church couldn't afford to pay him. The church was debt free. We didn't even have a mortgage. He, was take, he even took money that had been raised for an orphanage in Lebanon for children. This money had been raised. And so they called me. I was working in England at the time. They called me and said, you know, we, this, they were. Their concern, <laughs> yeah, Their, the, the, the concern of the powers that be was not the congregation. The concern was they were hosting the Centennial Archdiocese Convention here in Atlanta, and they were afraid perhaps it, wouldn't, it would fall through. So I come in here, and they had told me virtually nothing. So I get in here, and I hit all of this stuff. And I have to tell the people there, you know, I, I started by apologizing. I said, I, I want to tell you how sorry I am. I didn't know what the situation was. I didn't know that you wanted somebody to come here and at least guide, direct, and tell. And I didn't know that you did not get the respect you deserved. You see, that's the problem. Paul says, treat one another with a profound respect, a profound regard. And the fact is, even those in charge often do not. So we pray that God will help purify his church. But if you're going to pray, you've got to read scripture. 
because reading scripture, if you'll forgive the expression, is putting manure on the roses. Okay, it's what feeds the plants. We can pray if we indulge in scripture, not just so we can memorize verses and have, you know, handy hand grenades theologically to throw back at our Baptist uncle or whatever, you know, but so we can begin to soak into our mind and our heart what is the mind and heart of God's church. And even if it's just a little bit a day, I'm not suggesting you do an hour, I know that's not going to happen, but I mean even if it's a little bit, five, ten minutes a day, begin simply reading through. Because what has happened is that in so many churches, the teaching has gotten so skewed, so off, that people don't know the difference between right and wrong. Really don't know the difference between right and wrong. The church that I came out of, which I won't mention, but you know, I, was, I grew up in it, had adopted you know, this three-year lectionary thing where you read over a period of three years, you supposedly read through the entire Bible. Well, no, you don't. Once in three years, you will hear the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Once in three years, you will hear the Ten Commandments. That is the sum total of moral and ethical teaching you will get unless your priest has a brain and gives it to you extra. So the fact is, we have God only millions of people out there who, if you talk to them about sin, what, what, what is that? You know, I mean, I, mean, I can't have, I, I'm a guy and, you know, I shouldn't be having sex with this guy here. Why, you know, I mean, they don't know. And on a very real level, it's not their fault. It's not their fault. They have been led astray. So you need to immerse yourself in the Word of God. You need to know the teaching of the church, not like some kind of junior grade theologian. We don't need a group of, of theological orthodontists running around. You know, an orthodontist straightens out your teeth, an orthodox will straighten out your teaching, whether you ask him to or not, in many cases. Uh, so it's not a question of that, but you have to at least have to know some basics. St. Paul says, always be prepared to give a defense. You know, I mean, if somebody asks you, well, why, why do you make that thing and, and kiss that picture of that woman? Uh, if you really do need to have a better answer than, well, we do that. Because, you know, people will say, okay, they, they know their stuff real good. You can't do Simply remember this. St. John Maximovich, who was a strong supporter of the Western Rite, he was in Rokor, Russian Orthodox Church, that's that of Russia. John Maximovich said, it is the job of every Orthodox Christian, every Orthodox Christian, to defend the faith of the Church just in very simple, very straightforward ways. If someone asks you a question, you give them a simple answer. If you don't know the answer, tell them that. But say, I got somebody I can go to who knows. And I will be able to give it to you from then. Them. 
recognize that we live in a world which is fallen, which is becoming chaotic, and which is demon-ridden. Always trust in God, but always be discerning and aware that you do not be led astray by false truth disguised as something else. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.